Welcome back everyone to The Heart Podcast. I'm so excited about this episode because we have two phenomenal guests, Dr. Saron Stewart from the University of Connecticut and Dr. Shayla Haynes from Texas A&M University. Today, we're gonna continue the conversation that we started in the last episode, deepening our understanding about the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Framework that the American Association of Colleges and Universities, along with the Kellogg Foundation, are advancing. Last time, Dr. Pascarella introduced us to the pillars of the framework. Today, we're gonna focus on just one of those foundational pillars. The pillar is narrative change. Today, we're going to talk about how we can change the narrative in college campuses by engaging with counter-narratives as a tool inside and outside of the classroom. Essentially, we want to talk through how can counter-narratives help us in truth-telling and in changing the narrative. Milagros, I'm excited too for our guest today. I have read Dr. Haynes' work and I have taken classes with Dr. Stewart. So this feels like a very special opportunity to have a conversation with two scholars who have shaped my own thinking during my doctoral journey. I agree, Truth. This is a great honor. I know today we're going to leave with several nuggets of wisdom of what counter-narratives are and how they can be a way to change the deficit narrative that often surfaces in higher education. Okay, so as you can tell, our team is truly looking forward to this episode. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Dr. Haynes is an Associate Professor of Higher Education Administration at Texas A&M University. She has several co-edited books, including Interrogating Whiteness and Relinquishing Power, White Faculty's Commitment to Racial Consciousness in STEM Classrooms, as well as Race, Equity, and the Learning Environment, the Global Relevance of Critical and Inclusive Pedagogies in Higher Education. She also has several publications in various journals. One publication that I want to lift up at the moment is a book chapter published with Dr. Stewart and other colleagues in the book entitled Black Feminist Epistemology, Research and Praxis. The title of the chapter is Intersectionality, Methodology, and the Black Women Committed to Write Us Resistance. Dr. Saran Stewart is also joining us today. She is Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs and Director of Global Education at the NIAC School of Education at the University of Connecticut. She also has several co-edited books, including one that I just noted as co-edited by Dr. Haynes. She also has authored the book, Decolonizing Qualitative Approaches for and by the Caribbean, and Each One Teach One, which she co-edited with two colleagues. She has also published a number of journal articles. Her most recent work is Provoking Reflection, a photo voice exploration of non-traditional adult learners' challenges in a Jamaican higher education context in the Journal of Continuing Higher Education, which she published with three other colleagues. I hope you all grab something to write down some notes because this is gonna be a great session. I now turn it over to Omar for our land acknowledgement and to kick us off in this conversation. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction, Milagros, and welcome once again to our guests. Dr. Stewart, it's a real pleasure to have you back on the podcast, and Dr. Haynes, it's an honor to meet you. 
In the spirit of sharing knowledge, both for our audience and for myself as a student, I'm really looking forward to learning more about counter-narratives, particularly as a teaching tool. And with that said, Dr. Haynes, can you please share with our audience what critical counter-narratives are and how they could be a transformative methodology towards achieving educational equity in higher education classrooms? Thank you, thank you. Okay, so critical counter-narratives, in short, are positional discourses. So what are the counter stories to the master narratives that might say that who I am as a Black woman is someone whose body can be dominated, right? Is someone who's, because of the dark, lovely, beautiful, dark nature of my skin, that my body can be objectified, that I am not beautiful, that my femininity is not soft, is not vulnerable. So I write critical counter narratives as oppositional discourses to those types of master narratives. So that is what critical narratives are and how can they be used? I can't start answering that question without acknowledging my mentor, Dr. Frank Tewitt, who is at least in my earliest or most recent recollection of how to use uh, narratives and their role um, and their power um, taught me in the doctoral classroom. He was the first person that I can kind of remember to use narrative in the classroom and then to expose me to how to use it. In the context of my classroom, I have followed his modeling and engaged students in, in free rights to try to activate students' voices and bring those oppositional discourses into the classroom. Something that one another mentor of mine, um, Dr. Lori Patton Davis and Dr. Bill Cross or William Cross Jr. have used something that I've adopted in my classroom as the one minute email. That's even another way instantly to kind of get students to be reflective and activate students' voices, but also use them in formalized assignments as summative assignments, where I might ask students to engage in narrative writing, critical discourses as a way to think about the material that they've covered and as a way to think about how they might apply it in their future work or research. So in my intersectionality course, for example, I ask students to think about how intersectionality has shaped their life as a positionality assignment. And something that I, I wanna revisit that I learned from Dr. Tewitt, I have asked students in my um, first year doctoral seminar to think about why they write. So uh, a question that comes is a common thing that moves from the first week of the class to the last week. And then I asked them to think about this and as a summative assignment to respond to the following prompt. Why do I write and for whom do I write? That was a question that Dr. Tewitt asked us. So I, I believe it to be super powerful and it's something that I think about every time I sit down to write. So even if methodologically, I may not be using critical narratives um, in my research, it's always me thinking about how am I engaging in scholar activism to think about the role that this research will play. So 
I'm going to transition here and talk about how I think about critical counter narratives in my own research. So in my in my research, I draw upon intersectionality and, and Dr. Stewart and I have partnered on several publications that critical counter narratives were the basis of that research. And so you can look at our 2016 piece that we did with Dr. Allen. You could look at our, I think it was 2020 that we did a piece with Dr. Deal about our experiences as doctoral students in the classroom. But most recently our work on intersectionality, Dr. Stewart, myself, Dr. Patton Davis, Dr. Alan Moore, and Dr. Joseph, we have really thought about the role of write us resistance and write us research. So write us resistance is a phrasing used by a Black feminist legal scholar, Regina Austin, in her 1989 piece, uh, Sapphire Bound. And with write us resistance, that's W-R-I-T-E-U-S. So write us resistance. Um, Austin is urging Black women to take up the role of professional sapphires and write us research and legal scholarship that is forthright in its testimony in which Black women declare we are serious about ourselves. And so I have really embraced that uh, call in my own work and research and teaching and and try to help others think about particularly black women um, in my in my classroom, but also others who might want to be in solidarity with black women to think about how do we create more inclusive, equity minded, identity affirming learning spaces on campus, but also what is the role of research in, in transforming our society in that regard as well. So I really, at this point in my career, lean on Austin's write us resistance as a way to think about how I engage in critical counter narratives in my research, but also in my classroom. And so I think about that a lot when I think about what is transformative methodology towards educational equity. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for that beautiful explanation. It was so rich, but I'm just gonna focus in on like two main takeaways that I think were really valuable. The first one around scholar activism, framing this work as oppositional discourses and also writers resistance, right? That writing can be a tool for social change and empowerment and finding one's voice and, and knowing who you are writing for. I think that's really important because oftentimes doctoral students are like, how do I translate these theories, this work we're doing in the academy into activism? So thank you for framing it in that way. And your second point around, you had to be mentored into doing this work. And I think that's really important because students are a little bit hesitant sometimes. Can I use I? Can I center myself? Can I tell my stories? How authentic can I be? And you were supported by other mentors to free you up to incorporate this as a teaching tool and as a methodology. So I think that's fantastic. And that's a great segue into talking to Dr. Stewart about how you do this work in the classroom. And I've had the pleasure 
of taking multiple classes with you and seeing you in action. And I'm just really excited that you get a chance to talk about some of the ways that you approach counter narratives as assignments, as a pedagogy, as both writing and sharing. And so can you describe your counter narrative assignments and what you hope students would gain from them? So yes, we can just ditto everything that Dr. Haynes stated and copy and paste. So important to note is Dr. Haynes is one of my, if not one of my greatest peer mentors and sister scholars, right? As well as one of my cohort members. So, you know, it's not lost on me that both you, Truth, and Omar are also cohort members and the strength in which that's formed. And so what Dr. Haynes stated about our training, a part of our training in this particular PhD program by Professor Frank Tewitt, by also Dr. Lori Patton Davis and others was to strip us of unknowing our former selves and rebuild our new counter selves to the rhetoric that was in the literature and reading constantly that counter rhetoric. So as a part embedded within the curriculum were the ways in which it was the art of writing these counter narratives. So it was an embedded component into our curriculum. And what was really important that solidified the work that we do both in the classroom and in, in our research I would argue has been that there was a continuation of development of this process so that it gets deeper and richer and we take it to different heights that we just didn't imagine anymore. So as you know, Truth, you've had probably about three consecutive or so classes in which this assignment is constant. It is, it is one of those core assignments in all of my courses regardless of what course I teach. It anchors the course in a way that supports my teaching philosophy as a critical, within critical inclusive pedagogy. And one of the core principles or tenets of that work is really around activation of student voices and the use of their lived experiences being implemented and core to how they're learning and what they're learning so that they see themselves within the literature and they see themselves written as exactly what Dr. Haynes spoke about within that writer's resistance. And that the more of us that are able to do this just seamlessly is the more we end up disrupting the canon from the peripheries of learning, but become centered within knowledge, right? And knowledge contributions. So typically how these assignments would go and when prior to my start at the University of Connecticut as at the University of West Indies, and I taught more quantitative courses there. And so I taught most of the research methods at the grad at the grad level and the quantitative research methods. And they were always shocked by the fact that they had to write these counter narratives in a quantitative class. In fact, they were like, why? There's a lot of resistance built up in the beginning as to why. And again, it's the same principles that underlined. It was how do they see themselves in the literature? How do they write themselves and understand the literature that much more? And so the ways in which I've been able to utilize it as a tool 
is allowing students to break down the readings to the core units of analysis and see the ways in which their lived experiences have either been mirrored or not mirrored or affected by these readings. And the ways in which they themselves then own their writing that they understand that their lived experiences should be a part of the canon, that they are more than just a data point, they are the research themselves and they should be then rewarded and acknowledged as the researcher. Too often, especially in more positivist research, such as quantitative various methods, we tend to see black and brown folks and margin historically marginalized communities as mere data points that have no voices. Within this type of counter narrative analytical writing, it counters that entire disciplinary area, the eugenics of research, to actually recenter what most have made their careers off of just keep taking, right? So that's one way in which utilizing it in the classroom. And again, it's a it's it's is a qualitative based approach as well. If you notice some of the publications that Dr. Haynes has already spoken about, and I was able to speak in our class just last week. I think I'm doing overtime in more most days. And I was able to talk about one of the articles I published in the Caribbean Review of Gender Studies. And again, anchoring, using those counter narratives to disrupt the canon, to talk about these experiences of Black Caribbean women in academia, right? And in a way that's unorthodox, that's not normative to Western standardized ways of writing and journal public publications. And so how you write yourself into that space, I found is critical. Also very important is within the teaching of it is I never ask my students something I'm not willing to do or share myself. So as a part of the counter narratives is for us to own our voices. So for us to share those narratives. So I typically will either read aspects of those, especially because they are, the emotions are welcomed. They are a part of the narrative often. And so they become a part of the discourse and a part of allowing or emotional embodiment to be centered and not believed to be inadequate or fragile for it not to add to the rhetoric of fragility, especially a black woman. And so, you know, Emotions are welcome as a part of the entire learning process in the courses and how we go through each canon of it. And uh, it becomes this modeling aspect to help students to really start to own and counter their own narratives. And also to understand that their, their histories, their stories are, are valuable in ways that they may not have seen before in a textbook or in a publication and that they should be. Thank you so much for that explanation and your thoughts and reflections on counter narratives and also how this, you know, in theory, it sounds great. We're empowering students. We're asking them to center their voices, but it's also a complex process of undoing what they've been taught is the right way to do research or the right way to include themselves in writing. So thank you for sharing that. And also a point that you make that's really significant is around you don't ask students to do something 
that you wouldn't do. And I think that's really important because because of the way that we've been disciplined in the academy to try to be objective and create distance, we have to see people doing the work to feel empowered to do the work. So with that being said, we would love to hear an example that you might share with students of your own counter narrative, mm -hmm. the way that you inspire students or once again, role model how to engage in this work. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me to do that. So I wrote this recently last semester and the course was critical race theory in higher education. And the module was actually on the P through 20 module on access. And it so happened with the serendipitously or not that my oldest child in middle school had experienced one of many racial, racialized, just racist outcomes from one of her classmates. And this was in a drawing. So it wasn't even just words anymore. It was actually pencil to paper of a drawing of a clearly what was depicted as a slave being held by a leash, right? And picking cotton. And then the words like KFC and Kool-Aid being written on them. And so we were going to one of the assignments is that for that class, it was the night before class and I was prepping for class, right? And it was the day of where classes, you know, some of the students would then be encouraged to read their own narratives. And I thought, I'm gonna write a narrative. I was writing the narrative selfishly though, not just a way to instruct, but in a way to understand. Because everything I was reading, in the narrative was taking place in my own child. So I'll preface with that. And then I title the counter narrative as a love letter to my firstborn. And I don't think my ace has um, heard this one. So it'll be her, it'll be Dr. Haynes first time as well. So I wrote it as um, Dear Sakai, and I won't read all of it. I'll just read a small excerpt. I wrote, Dear Sakai, you are black excellence. You are the epitome of Duncan Andrade's growing roses in concrete. You are that audacious hope I see amidst all the educational failures thrown your way. You are my version of Toni Morrison's A Friend of Mind, where she writes, she gather me, man, the pieces I am. She gather them and give them back to me in all the right order. You see, it's good, you know, when you got a daughter who is a friend of your mind. I was trying to say something to you that was eloquent, but my words failed me as I saw your sadness and fear give way to anger when you looked over that drawing. The confusion that waved over you and the sudden defeat. Then your words that stayed with me. You said, Mama, racism is normalized at my school. You had normalized racial trauma and in that moment, your humanity was robbed. Your body will hold on to this much longer than your mind. And in each memory, there will be a familiar pain that I cannot ease. It will hurt in the pits of your gut or in the ache of your neck roll. And I will teach you to self-love and soothe each physiological holding of that pain. And as Bell Hooks teaches us, and I quote, it is love that allows us to survive whole. My precious child, you are not that join. You are not the depiction of that cruelty. You are the descendant of warrior queens. You are the ancestral daughter of the Maroons and you were taught our history of enslaved societies. And so you know your counter narrative. However, you are constantly confronted by the miseducation of the grand narrative depicted in that image. 
And, you know, I go on about it and I talk about what it would be to teach that child, the child who wrote it, that sat with my daughter for two years in school and teach about them. And we were just assigned the students to Karen Dutch's um, White Tears, right? And so I quote at the end of it that when I was imagine I would be speaking to the child that I would be remiss not to point out the irony of how in that moment in your principal's office, you were taught as Karen Dashe explains, white supremacy makes the tears of white women and girls important while rendering those of women and girls of color inconsequential, invisible, and the minds of many impossible. And so, you know, I go on to talk about love and what it means for us to do this work. And in many ways, so my counter narrative has shifted, right? Not just from the self, but now to the protection of mothering and how in that embodiment, having the legacy to teach now my own child what this work really looks like and this means for that generation coming up and you know we can discourse about the ap course crt not in schools and why it should be is a great example but so i wrote that and i ended it with reminding sakai about the bell hooks quote and truth be told i read this letter to her as a way of healing to be honest before i read it to the class and if you can remember truth, I think you were in that class. There were a lot of tears shed, including my own. So, Yes, there were a lot of tears that were shed that day. And I just remember really holding space for that bravery and that courage to, to do this type of work with so much depth and introspection. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. And Dr. Haynes, can you speak to the ways that counter-narrative writing and sharing differs from traditional classroom pedagogical approaches? And what ways do counter-narrative assignments provide opportunities for students to challenge the dominant narrative? First off, Dr. Stewart, your, your very personal narrative about my niece here just makes me, you know, only feel more love for you um, as a mother and a scholar. Your your depth and depths of love is constantly just affirming me and gives me hope for our future and deep motivation as a mother too. So thank you for modeling for me how to handle what I know is inevitability. So thank you. So I can answer your question by revisiting what Dr. Stewart just, just read. Part of me really, one of the biggest opportunities is that counter narratives, critical counter narratives allow us the opportunity to use our bodies to be disruptive so that we can teach so in one of my pieces I did, it is a collaborative autoethnography. So myself and three of my fellow Black scholars write about ourselves as Black critical pedagogues and our lived experiences from our different standpoints. We use intersectionality to do it. And one of the things we use as framing is embodied text, much like critical counter-narratives, embodied texts 
they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. That a critical counter narrative, like for me, I imagine similar for Dr. Stewart, it allows us to teach from the body, to complicate and nuance subject matter material in a way that could never be captured in the textbook alone. So to add that level of sophistication to help students really grapple, but also help them make sense of the course material, right? And so that's the opportunity. What I also think is important is it shows, if I can revisit again, something that Dr. Stewart brought up, it, it shows students that their perspectives their stories are worth being told. So I've had a student contact me recently who was in a class I taught last semester. She is a Muslim woman and, you know, she's sharing with me all these great research ideas and they are phenomenal, you know, uh, about things she wants to study and just all these beautiful ideas and curiosities that are coming to her mind. And one of them she shared with me, you know, I'm going on a study abroad experience. And I was thinking about, you know, just asking a central question of everyone that's traveling with us on the trip, like, and kind of understand how they're grappling with space and time and, and like, you know, how they're experiencing being interlopers, right, in this minoritized country context. And most of these students being, you know, white, but all having a desire to impact a global society, right? But so she was so curious about how these students are going to manage it. So she was going to ask them one central question and kind of just have conversations with them and capture all these dialogues. And I thought, this is fascinating. Or you might consider just telling your own story, because that is a story yet to be told. <laughs> How are you experiencing this? And your, your perspective, and that is just as important to the research as capturing all these other people's stories and, and putting that out there. And honestly, I think it's hard for students to imagine, especially minoritized students to racially and ethnically minoritized students to really think that their story is canon knowledge or could be stand up against what is the canon and i'm like no yeah or that i would love to hear that that's a that's a dissertation i couldn't wait to read you know and i, I hope this student takes me up on it. i said do do the other things if you want it's totally your choice you have a right to choose however i want to put this out there too so i think this idea of standpoint teaching from the body and you just understanding the role of counter narratives and how important they are. And so I, that's honestly how I might start with an answer. I feel like the second part of your question I had thoughts on too, like how you asked me, like, how do they differ, right? How might they- Yes, differ? from traditional pedagogical approaches and how do they challenge the, the dominant narrative? So this won't be a surprise to Dr. Stewart, but there are three large, you know, large paradigms in the in the teaching and learning discourse. 
you know, the instructor's center paradigm, the student center paradigm, and then the one that Dr. Stewart and I kind of teach from and we're trained from this critical and inclusive um, pedagogical paradigm. And so I would argue that counter narratives and teaching, using them as a pedagogical tool or a teaching move or a, a teaching strategy might be largely found within all the approaches that would fall underneath that critical and inclusive. But I agree with Dr. Stewart again, that, you know, you'd be less instructor centered if you thought about stopping for a second and just asking your students, why don't we stop here and free write what, what resonated with you about the last 20 minutes of lecturing that you just experienced? Right. You'd be less instructor. So I think it fits in every context or even, you know, just asking your students if you're very conscious of just that there's a societal world that we're all living in and operating under. And then your students show up to your classroom and you think, OK, I have an agenda. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Why don't you stop for just a second and just ask students how they're doing? How are you? This is a common practice for me that I, I hold space in my class for about 15 minutes before class starts to be like, how's everybody doing? What's happened in your life since the last time I saw you? And, you know, the, the amount of stuff that comes and it's very important information for me because I might change my entire <laughs> ordering of the, uh, the, the lesson plan or throw something entirely out based on that first 15 minutes. So to me, that's regardless of which teaching paradigm you operate from, if you start there, that might just give students the opportunity to focus more. They they had this on their mind and they're glad they got it out or not to feel so isolated. So the one student who's missing home and they heard someone else say they were missing home, that might help just alleviate the stress that or the distress that a student could be in in your classroom and you don't even know. Yeah, that was so beautifully stated in terms of like really acknowledging the full humanity of students, right? And how that helps you to make choices as an instructor in the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, we would also like to ask you to share a little bit of your own counter story, put the ball back in your court to do a little bit more of that beautiful modeling that has been done today. Um, so we can hear your voice in the way you approach counter narratives. Well, thank you. So Dr. Stewart talked about her counter narrative, allowing her, that's another beauty that's not outward focus, but inward focus, uh, the power of counter narrative, that it allows me to operate out of an expansiveness of my identity. It allows me to show how my life has evolved. So I heard her say, you know, my narratives have evolved at this point to that I can write even to my daughter and find it relevant to the course content, right? And also to my my, my parenting, because like what she said, she shared it with her daughter first, right? Which is just significant. So as a way to show how I've evolved, I thought I would offer a piece of narrative writing, a counter narrative that was my first try at it. So it's actually from this publication that it was published. So you can read the full piece, Dr. Stewart and I and Kristen Deal in our 
2020 publication. So I'm just going to read a small excerpt from this. This is a piece of my writing from my first year in the doctoral program where Dr. Tua was using counter narratives as a big part of our socialization to a scholar identity. And so I will read a portion of it. So despite being a self-identified educator and a consummate learner, I viewed a majority of my formal education experiences, both as a student and a scholar, as racialized. To be honest, maintaining active participation in a system that rarely accounts for or values my presence is difficult and requires a daily process of forgiveness, renewal, and recommitment. Reconciliation was first introduced in a class dialogue. A major component of the curriculum included the formulation of a educational biography. And it was apparent to Dr. Tuitt that I had been struggling with this assignment as I was having difficulty intellectualizing the breadth of emotions this assignment had precipitated. With an uncensored honesty, I shared with the class that I found it challenging to present my experience without addressing how my understanding of these concepts and that these concepts, meaning identity affirming learning environments, are grounded in my identity as a Black person, a woman, and a Christian, which have remained isolated from my professional identity. In response, Dr. Tua encouraged me to incorporate the sum of who I am into my identity as a scholar. Then and only then, he said, would I truly draw on the source of strength that exists within me? I began to seek wholeness of self through the process of reconciliation. This allowed me to see the strength and the power of aligning my multiple identities as demonstrated in this excerpt of her hope below. I can say with confidence that my participation in this program is stretching my faith. By this, I mean that I, can, I pray daily and repeatedly seeking wisdom for things I don't understand, forgiveness for judging others and for carrying discontent in my heart and peace to rid me of insecurity and fear. I share this publicly, not as a means of seeking empathy, but rather as acknowledgement of how my participation in this program, this education system, this learning environment is transforming me for the better. I like who I am today and long for what God desires me to be. And the best thing about this experience is that I don't share in it alone. Wow, that's really powerful uh, sharing. Both of you have given us an example of what it looks like to teach from an incredibly vulnerable place, but also a place of power in a place of resistance. So I'm asking as a colleague and as someone that early in my career, when I first started to teach at the University of Connecticut, I used to bring in testimonial as a tool in the classroom, which is really similar, but different from counter narratives. And I found it really powerful as a learning experience. But I also noticed that over time and through the years, I started to feel not hesitation in the power of that type of tool in the classroom, but hesitation about whether the vulnerability that I'm putting on the table is something that I should do. Like in terms of thinking about self-preservation, like how much do I keep doing this 
to what degree is it, you know, wearing me out? To what degree does it wear out other racially minoritized students who in moments during this country's social political evolution have hesitation to exposing more of themselves to anyone else, especially to their white peers. And so I feel like I have a, a rub in my head about this is such a powerful tool. And this other part that feels like sometimes I don't want to tell you my story <laughs> or wanting to create space for the students who don't, who are just like, I'm done sharing my story. I don't want to share my story. And so it's kind of like a, a rub. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to two things as we kind of wrap up our call today. One is how do you support students through writing counter narratives based on their own identity? So, right, like how might that support look different for when your students identify as Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, or a combination of those identities? And when a student identifies as white and you're asking them to engage in this work. And then secondly, and related to what I just shared is, how do you work through the challenges and the risks that come with showing up this way and engaging with counter narratives in your teaching and in your research over time? I would love to hear from the both of you on your thoughts on that. I can start us off. I remember the course that we were in when Dr. Haynes at the time, before Dr. Haynes was Dr. Haynes, was like, I, she just disrupted the entire class. Well, I'm not doing this. This does not <laughs> pertain to me. So I can anticipate that our reflection on this response is going to be both from the resistance and from, at the time, the urge from our mentor was you need to trust the process. And we resisted the process very, very openly as well. So there is always resistance. I've been doing this for over 10 years in the classroom at mostly the graduate level. I've only done it once with an undergraduate level course. And so for every single semester over the past 10 years, I've had this assignment and I've always been met with resistance, no matter which country I'm also teaching in. There is absolute resistance, right? And the resistance takes different shape. There is this sense of, I've, I have nothing to say. I don't want you to know my business. I'm not doing that. There is a, there is a loss of trust in the educational setting. And especially by black and brown students. I've experienced less resistance from my white students, to be quite honest with you. I've experienced more resistance from my students of color. And it does take time and it takes trust. I will say that over time that I've done this, I've never had a reason to stop doing it. No, it doesn't always get used in the same way, meaning that some students utilize it just for the course, they're not gonna use it again. Some students move it to different levels and layers by actually publishing their work, right? Incorporating it into their dissertations, publications, etc. One student asked me, why am I trying to all, what am I gonna do with their vulnerability, right? And what I kept pushing back and saying is the following. For you to do the work that you are being designated to do, how much of your self-work has been done as yet? How many persons have been able throughout your educational biography 
being able to understand who you are at your core and at the various intersections of oppression and the ways in which it looks like. And I've recognized that in doing that, it has allowed some reframing from which point of view it's coming from. But I don't go into the assignment ever assuming that there isn't resistance. In fact, I anticipate the resistance, to be quite honest with you. And as best as possible, try to gain a sense of why we're doing that. Lay that out very clearly and constantly and consistently. And also have my own vulnerability on display constantly by welcoming um, opening up the space for various emotions. So I lie, I did have a student that dropped the course and I recognize where that came from. It was a white female actually, and I tell you that. We, at the time, this was her first class being taught by black professors. And she's never been asked in her entire career from P through doctoral level to ever define who she is in terms of whiteness. But yet, was an equity coordinator in STEM fields. And I said, my goodness, you've never been asked to do this work, to actually understand your own biases coming to the forefront. So it was an interesting shift and that student ended up dropping the course. So in the 12, that was my 12th year in doing this. And in that, the student definitely dropped. So I will say that there is that level of resistance to counsel. I don't know, the other thing that's synonymous, which is difficult, even as I reflect on our own teaching, and Dr. Haynes can help guide me on this, I don't know that I can teach any other way without this tool. So I don't know if I've gotten stuck. And in many ways, that's a danger in our teaching, right? And as Dr. Haynes said before, those paradigms that we try to shift around. What I have done is decreased the number of them in different ways from individuals who at various levels needed that for their own learning, right? but I've never not used them in a class. So I don't know, Dr. Haynes, what do you think? Yes, listen, I am with you in the sense that I have, I believe them necessary. I just think I use them, I'm very mindful of like how I use them and to what end. So here's a good example. So in my intersectionality class, which I mentioned already, Every student has to write a positionality statement. And I, I know for a fact that Dr. Stewart does this because I just know her and we are we were trained in very similar ways. Every time we do something like this, it's all scaffolded, right? So we wouldn't ever ask a student on the first day to tell, you know, help me understand how intersectionality has shaped your life. And I hadn't even talked to you about what white heterosis patriarchy is and understanding like white heterosis patriarchy and capitalism as a, you know, intersectional system of oppression and to whom benefits in that system and who is subordinate in that system. So then you can write in week 15, like how has intersectionality shaped my life? And if you are a person who's largely benefited from these systems, you can still talk about how intersectionality has shaped your life. By then you're able to, you know, and arguably I spent a great deal of work in that class, for example, talking about like, how do we be in solidarity with black women and similarly minoritized groups 
to do this work. These are people you care about, right? So going back to what Dr. Stewart said, so if you, if this is the research and work you want to do, then this is also required. Let me help you. This is a perfect place to do it. And then what I also try to do in all of my courses, and I think critical narratives help with this, because by the end, we've all engaged in some level of self-work that I constantly remind students, like, you're going to be the smartest person in the room. Make no mistake. Certainly after this class on these issues, <laughs> like you're, you're the smartest person. Trust me when I say this. And number two, this is your support. So mm -hmm. look around the room. Now you know who are your, as Bell Hooks would say, these are your comrades in the struggle for liberation, for paradise. Look around. Everyone in this class, these are, these are your partners. And, and let's not forget, we're in this classroom and I am your teacher, your professor. Though we're in the profession together, we're in the field. So in a lot of ways, we are colleagues. I need you. I told a student who I had my intersectionality course right after Dr. Stewart came and lit the class up with her guest visit. Afterwards, I had two male-identified students, one who identifies as a Black man, another Latinx man, stay after class with me and my TA and said, listen, you know, we're in week four, I've been doing these readings, and I'm really thinking about how I show up in this space, and I'm wondering if we can just talk a few minutes about my maleness. And my student who identifies as Latinx, he, he says to me, you know, Dr. HD, I, I'm so sorry, because... I even feel like this is here. I am asking you to teach me. I, like I'm, I'm perpetuating this by keeping you after. And I said, well, not really, because I've put myself in a position to teach you. I'm happy to do it. And also, it's my pleasure, and I need to. I engage in this work not just because I'm an expert in it or I, I have some expertise, but also because this is part of my liberation struggle. Mm -hmm. I need you to understand this so that my children. And your children and your children's children and my children's children will have a better situation, have a better ed have better educational outcomes. This is about my life. This is life work. It just happens to be taking place in the halls of this institution. But this is really life work. So by the time. So it seems less risky. So, you know, um, Lagos, your original question was like, it has, it feels less risky when I keep that in mind. And when I remind students that I need, like, we're in this thing together. I'm not out here taking all the risks. You're not out here taking all the risks. And we're, we got to be, but that takes a lot of scaffolding. And I would like to say for the record that for the last year or so, I've been teaching all my courses virtually. So a fully online class and sometimes Zoom, like on remote. I've had all those types of modalities. And all of this works too in those mediums. So it's all pedagogically possible. So I, I, I just wanted to say that for the record. And I, I, I it feels less risky when I when I do it that way. And and but the reality is it is risky. It's yeah. risky for women of color to be doing this work because our bodies are, are signal in, in white imaginations that, hey, 
they can be dominated, right? That the, 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 we ought to be in fear for our vulnerabilities. It's risky work for us, but this is how I navigate the risk. I just want to say that to add to that, what we are also driving home is another research skill that is often not taught, purposefully so not taught, and not taught in the vacuum or the canon of research methods and methodology. And the art of doing this type of counter narrative CRT is a part of critical race methodology. But again, when you place it on the peripheries, it's, and you hear the resistance, you often have to wonder, are you resisting because you just have never been exposed to it? Or are you resisting because you believe in the smokescreen rhetoric of white supremacy about what research is and what it should not be? And so I think as soon as we try to change the lens within that and reframing it, it becomes now a powerful tool and another arsenal in this work that we do. And so even though there it is met with resistance, Dr. Ains and I have really explained that once the student, I do believe significantly, it is another tool for these students to utilize and researchers, period, to utilize in the research discourse, right? That arguably can be more affirming as well once done right. Yeah, I appreciate that that perspective that it is, um, it can be affirming and it can also be done in the collective, right? You're not asking students to do anything that you're not willing to do. And exactly. that resistance that shows up is a reflection probably of both of the things you just mentioned, Dr. Stewart, which is both of the canon. They haven't likely had a faculty of color before and mm -hmm. on top of it, haven't been asked to do this digging of self right, an examination of self. And then the rub comes in when they're being asked to do that for the first time in a classroom where they're for the first time with a faculty of color. And so there's this incredible navigation that needs to happen on, on the behalf of faculty of color doing this work. And so my heart is so opened and inspired by what you both have shared because it is hard work. But I appreciate the perspective of what you're seeing, which is, is a shared risk. And there's a, there's a risk of not doing this work. So exactly. I asked the question about the risk of doing it, but the risk of not doing it is what makes me keep doing it. So it's like, I'm gonna take a risk somewhere. And do I wanna take the risk toward what you were saying, Dr. Stewart, about the struggle for liberation? Or do I wanna take the risk that leaves every the status quo in place? Where do I wanna take the risk? And so I feel like risk is there. Which, which, which direction do I wanna work in? And I appreciate that the two of you are saying the risk towards liberation and the struggle of, for, for change is in our collective hands. And so this work has to happen. I'm so grateful for the both of you, for the wisdom you shared, and I'm just going to just sit with what you all said today a couple of times and listen to this a few times. I am so grateful. Wow. Just really want to thank the both of you, Dr. Haynes, Dr. Stewart, for your incredible contributions, which transcend, you know, space and the classroom and in your research as well. Really appreciate the critical question that we started off at the beginning of the conversation of why we write and for whom we write. So powerful, since writing itself can be um, a tool for social change. 
And, you know, I, I think it's really powerful how the both of you model authenticity and vulnerability in the classroom so that students can learn that their stories and, and their voices are important, just as you were both taught by your mentors and, you know, continue to emanate that. So I think that's really beautiful. And from what you shared, you know, it's just how critical counter narratives can be a way in which students can realize that they are research themselves. I think that's, that's really cool. Like that's, that's something that was just in a conversation last week in class and you know a student was like oh i'm so like data research like it's you know it's intimidating but like when when you embody it when it's like you i don't know it's it's almost like e easier to grasp you know it's like it's it's human it's it's valuable and that's really i think that's really cool and you know you both clearly gave many examples of, of how you model and embody this process in which emotions are welcomed as part of the discourse in the classroom and how it may change the course of that class for that day in a good way. You know, it's like every day might be different and that and that's a good thing. And, you know, just just really want to uplift and just share that I really value the the personal counter narratives that you both shared really powerful and and how, you know, they really capture the, the complex reality of this this heart work and your life work as well you know the two are like very much intertwined so really want to wish you the best as you continue to make strides to positively impact the academy the community in which you shared which will take time and it takes trust but you know i, I think there's a lot to lose if we don't do this work as always we're thankful for the support from the office of diversity and inclusion and the center for excellence in teaching and learning at the university of connecticut because it takes a village and it takes heart